I'm Brianna Draxler. And I'm Beth Bartel. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, April 17th, 2012. Coming up, naturalist Denise Hertzing talks with us about her long-term research program, Communicating with Atlantic Spotted Dolphins in the Bahamas. You could look at it as a participatory type of science where your subjects were actually mutual and equal. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. The emperor penguin's tuxedo-like plumage makes it easily recognizable, all the way from space. A group of international scientists used high-resolution satellites to zoom in on penguin colonies along the coast of Antarctica and estimate their numbers. They counted nearly 600,000 emperor penguins, twice the number determined by previous land estimates. The satellites were based out of a company in Longmont, Colorado. This was the first time that satellite mapping technology was used to take a census of an entire species population. It was particularly advantageous because the remote locations of the emperor penguins' colonies are inhospitable and usually inaccessible. The satellites also minimize the cost and environmental impact of studying these iconic birds. Scientists from the University of Minnesota and the British Antarctic Survey used a technique called pan-sharpening to distinguish the four-foot penguins from ice, shadows, and guano in the satellite images. Of the 44 colonies the team identified, seven were previously unknown. The emperor penguin is not currently endangered, but having a population baseline is essential for tracking the impacts of climate change and melting ice on the species. The results of the study were published online in the journal Plus One last Friday. The semester is nearing its end, and stress levels are starting to rise. And researchers who published in a recent edition of Frontiers in Evolutionary Neuroscience say anxiety may be related to intelligence. The researchers looked at two study groups, one of worriers, people clinically categorized as having general anxiety disorder, and the other a control group. The researchers used the nutrient choline as an indicator of brain energy use. Through magnetic resonance spectroscopy, they found that worry and intelligence were both associated with low choline levels, or high energy use. In both groups, the researchers saw correlations between intelligence and worry. However, they found the opposite relationship in each case. Among the control group, the people with higher intelligence quotients were associated with less worry. But in the group of worriers, the people with higher intelligent quotients were associated with the highest levels of anxiety. The researchers believe the findings suggest that anxiety and intelligence co-evolved. Jeremy Coplin, a professor of psychology at SUNY Downstate and a scientist involved in the study, told KGNU they hypothesize two styles of smart people, one in which people who are very smart do not believe that there is anything they cannot tackle. So no need to worry. He points out this can be dangerous when these smart non-worriers are in positions of power and fail to foresee problems such as the collapse of the housing market. The other style of smart people is where people exaggerate the probability of exceedingly remote danger. That does come in handy every couple of generations, though, when a large and unexpected threat such as the Holocaust or a earthquake materializes. Meanwhile, says Coplin, people suffer in between. 
So next time you feel panic about something seemingly insignificant, just think. It may be linked to your intelligence. Severe depression is a serious illness. But sometimes people feel blue because they're sick with the flu, or they have a substance abuse problem, or they have a gluten sensitivity that damages their intestines. All these are reasons why many researchers have wanted a blood test to help distinguish between severe depression and other ailments. And in a small pilot study, it looks like they've succeeded. But with a big surprise about just which blood-based markers give the biggest clue about who is depressed. Kathy Pager, one of the study co-authors, heads up adolescent psychiatry at the Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. She says the new markers are not the usual suspects, such as stress hormones or the feel-good hormone serotonin. Instead, Pager says, stronger markers for depression come from inflammation within the body and whether or not each cell can keep house. Finding out that some of the mechanisms that for years we've been using to explain depression don't emerge from this calls into play what our beliefs are and what our theories are about what causes depression. Maybe if there's something going on, for example, with metabolism or with inflammation. If this research proves correct, it might open some new ways to deal with depression, such as helping a person choose a way to eat and exercise that reduces chronic inflammation and increases each cell's ability to clean house. The new study is being published today in the Journal of Translational Psychiatry. And that's the headline news from science. Now for some special sounds explained by How on Earth's Jim Pullen. Dolphins make three general types of sounds. Whistles. Clicks. And burst pulsed sounds. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Beth Bartel. 27 years ago, Dr. Denise Herzing first slipped into the warm and clear Bahaman waters in a quest to learn how to communicate with dolphins. And every spring since then, she has gathered the crew, the equipment, the money, the courage, and the patience to return to work cooperatively with them, unfettered in the wild. Dolphins are intelligent and communicative creatures within their own species and with the other animals native to their waters. But still, a hundred million years of evolutionary history and pressures imposed by radically different environments separate our two species. Can that enormous chasm be crossed? Can we have a conversation with an alien, a different and intelligent species? Dr. Herzing believes that first we have to understand dolphin society and give them the freedom to choose to communicate with us. She recently talked with How on Earth producer Jim Pullen about her research philosophy and methods, inspired by Jane Goodall and Diane Fossey. As a child, you dreamed of communicating. Was it specifically with dolphins? Well, I was really interested in other animal minds in general, but I was just very intrigued with dolphins because they were very analogous to humans and primates in their social structure and in their uh, evolutionary status, 
but they are so different because they're in the water. So they have such different bodies and potentially such different communication signals, I thought, wouldn't it be neat to understand an aquatic society underwater like we do primates or humans? How, in general, do dolphins communicate? Well, dolphins certainly use sound, and they're very good acousticians, but they also use things like touch. For example, they're very tactile, and sound can uh, actually be used as touch in the water, it turns out. They're very visual, um, as many tropical and subtropical species are especially, and they have taste. They don't have smell, but they actually uh, can perceive certain uh, chemicals in the water. So they use many types of signals for communication, not just sound. You turned to anthropology, didn't you, in kind of a participatory engagement? The basic philosophy at the end Looking at the models I had, which were, in fact, Jane Goodall and Diane Fossey, who went out in the natural world and they said, okay, if I put myself in this animal's environment for long enough, get them used to me, I'll be able to observe who they are in their society and maybe as individuals. And that's essentially what they did. So with dolphins, it adds an extra element of complication because dolphins spend most of their time underwater. And most of the places to study dolphins in the world are not conducive towards underwater observation. Most researchers simply are limited by surface observations because waters are murky or dangerous in some cases. So what I decided to do was I wanted to find a place in the world where you could see animals underwater, and I I struck upon the Bahamas through various circumstances. But my approach was to observe them in their own natural society, and and I just kind of reasoned that, well, (laughs) you know, we're pretty clumsy in the water, we probably can't keep up with the animals most of the time, and they're going to have to be okay with us in the water to watch them. I mean, you can't really build an underwater blind, because the animals are moving. They don't sit in one place, you know, you can't sit by a reef underwater if you could and just watch the dolphins, because they're moving. So my approach was, okay, they're going to have to be mutually interested and comfortable with us, so that involves uh, habituation. But even beyond that, because they were curious about us, I thought, well, you could look at it as a participatory type of science where your subjects were actually mutual and equal in that if they want to observe you, you'll show them something if you want to observe them. So really, that's how I approached it. And literally, for the first five years of my work, I had a research boat, and I basically sat in one place and let the dolphins show up when they wanted to and get in the water and let them check us out just to get them comfortable with us because I didn't want them being spooked by us. I didn't want to chase them. I didn't want to poke and prod them and capture them even temporarily to do things, which is, is again, how science has proceeded traditionally. And it actually worked really well within five years, which seems like a long time, but it was a gradual process. And, And we got a lot done in that time. We could take photographs of them, for example, and at least get their spots down and and sex them. And maybe we didn't see a lot of behaviors the first five years, but we got to know who they were individually, which is critical when you're tracking a social mammal. And after that, they eventually started showing us their normal behavior and, and got comfortable with us. Your kind of research program demands a, a patient, I think, that most scientists would find hard to tolerate. Well, you know, I'm kind of an old-school naturalist. You know, I learned from my mentors the value of putting in the time, 
nowadays, actually, I think it's kind of the opposite. I think we're very data-driven in the sense that we think we can get, you know, our, our little points of data and make sense out of a system. But in fact, observation is data-driven, and it's also a process in the sense that it builds on itself. You know, for example, I'm a very experienced observer in the water now. That that took time, not only analyzing the data, but just watching the dynamics and using our human brains, which are, of course are complicated and great pattern recognizers. So I think there's something to be said for really observing a natural system and also, you know, collecting data in the many ways that we do. But I just think you cannot shortcut some things. And I think understanding a complex society is one of them. You really have to put in the time. Then you move to a more active phase, but it still respected the philosophical tenets of your research. What we started noticing is that the dolphins would engage us in their own society to a certain extent. They were doing things like doing spontaneous mimicry stuff with us, and they were really curious about us. It's a very unique situation in the sense that uh, these dolphins have a fairly easy life, at least relative to other dolphins, and they have a lot of social time, and they're very gregarious species. And so we started thinking, well, it's kind of always in the back of my mind, wouldn't it be cool? But it started becoming a reality of, like, what if we gave them some kind of interface that had been done in captivity and with other species, certainly? What if we gave them some kind of interface to sort of go further? You know, how far could you take it? You know, if you gave them ways to label objects in the wild or or share information, would they take you along to the reef and show you things? I mean, you know, I mean, they're potentially companions in the sea to a certain extent. And, you know, they're so smart and they're so complex and they're interested in humans. Not all dolphins are by any means, but so, so it became an opportunity. So basically what, what I did is I recruited the best colleagues I could find, which was a, a small group of cognitive scientists and behavioral scientists. Um, Adam Pack from Hawaii, who had worked uh, extensively with uh, dolphins and cognition, Fabienne Delfour, a colleague from France, also um, a leading cognitive researcher there with orcas and dolphins, and Christine Johnson in San Diego, who would work both with dolphins uh, when I was a student with her and with uh, primates looking at complex communication, and basically said, what could we do? You know, how could we use these moments we have with the dolphins and potentially create an interface? So, and that was 1996. So by 1997, we had... An idea, we had based it on what we knew about dolphins, what had been tried in captivity, uh, with equipment, what we knew about their sensory systems, and we were using some of the techniques that had been used with primates and African gray parrots, specifically Irene Pepperberg's work, saying, let's use a social rivalry framework, which is basically saying, we're going to model this system for you, we're all going to pretend we're just one species, and we're going to show you how it works, and if you want to get in the game, then by all means, use the signals and get in the game. And that's really the tool and the framework that has been successful with other species. So we were trying to design it to work in the wild with dolphins. Whistles are primarily used for long-distance communication and as contact calls between mothers and calves when they are separated. Clicks are primarily used for orientation and navigation. Clicks usually contain ultrasonic information above human hearing. Burst pulses are packets of clicks spaced tightly together. (coughs) 
These sounds are used during close proximity social behavior, such as fighting. That's the sound of dolphins explained by How on Earth's Jim Pullen. You're listening to KGNU's How on Earth, Boulder, Denver at 88.5 FM and 1390 AM and streaming at KGNU.org. Jim's interview with Dr. Hertzing continues as she discusses the second interactive phase of her multi-decadal project. Now, the technology then was a bit rudimentary. Um, We didn't have, for example, real-time sound recognition abilities, um, which we're getting now finally. So we didn't have the ability to recognize if they mimicked a sound real-time. Our, you know, our, our ears are not good at discriminating whistles, for example, in the water. So that was a bit of a challenge. Um, the first year I actually had a wristband that was completely acoustic, and what I had designed were tonal sequences that, that had both rhythm and relative tonality, because that's actually what humans are really good at discriminating in the water. Um, because we had have some way of knowing what those signals were and, and reacting to them. So that was our system the first year, and they were signals the dolphins still could mimic. Um, the second year we decided to go both with acoustics and with a visual keyboard, reasoning that, well, these animals are also very visual, and they like to go and explore things. So and we actually switched systems after the first year to include visual symbols that had now, instead of uh, tonal aspects that they had uh, artificial whistles that we created. So a, one whistle meant uh, scarf, which is a favorite toy of the dolphins. Another whistle meant seaweed, which is something they have in their natural environment they like to play with. So same idea, only now we decided to go with whistles and try to, try to label objects specifically that they already used with us in the water. And all this work was done relative to what I call their, these little windows of opportunity when they would play with us. When they were doing their own behavior, our protocol was we just did not do the two-way work. We just said, let's let them be who they are. They're doing their own thing. That's fine. When that window opens up, when they have time to interact with us, that's when we're going to do the uh, phase two work, the interactive work. And so that, that worked actually pretty well. So we felt like we weren't disturbing them, with their natural behavior, but yet taking advantage of, of those opportunities. But, you know, over four years, we actually discovered a lot of cool things. We saw them interested in interacting with the keyboard, working with us, working with the keyboard as much as they could, uh, having exchanges. And actually, we're just publishing that work this spring. Actually, it's just coming out in May. Um, so it, it, was, it was amazing to be out in the wild, you know, 40 miles away from land with these wild dolphins who would spend hours with us with the keyboard. They'd bring their friends back. They would come back multiple times during the day. So clearly they saw something was up, here was some potential system or something new in the water at least, and they were interested in exploring it. Uh, Are we expecting someday that a dolphin will be able to ask us a question like, where do you go in the winter when you are not here? Or can I visit you where you are in the winter? Or that there is a term for winter. It seems to me that interspecies communication might be crossing a gulf that human beings aren't intelligent enough to cross. <laughs> you know, you hit it right on the head. You know, people always say, well, that seems impossible or improbable. And I'm like, well, yeah, human beings may not be, we may not be smart enough to do it, or we may be too framed in our own world, which is required, certainly, to do what we do. But yeah, can we get out of our skin and try to imagine? I mean, that's the big question. You know, 
what's going on. You know, my sense of it is is this. You know, it, it's kind of like looking at other human cultures. You know, you know, an Eskimo may have what twenty words for ice, or you know, it, your communication evolves in your context, your environmental context, and your social context. So, you know, what we have in common with some other species, like social mammals, are things like families, relationships, problem-solving, uh, politics, you know, all these things, you know, whether they label them similarly, you know, I, there's probably some room for analogy. You know, I, I mean, if you've got a friend or a foe, you know, that concept may, in fact, be similar in animal societies. Now, you're look, if you're looking at social insect intelligence, that might be a different issue. You've got a collective intelligence. You've got divisions of roles that, that might not be the same. I mean, these are really the big questions we don't know. You know, we don't even know, for example, if dolphins label objects. You know, we don't know if they have names and, and words for things. In Again, in other species besides humans, we know they have these referential signals. Um, we know that for vervet monkeys. We know that from fabulous work with prairie dogs, that they can actually label, you know, a man walking through a field with a yellow shirt with a gun or not a gun, and then they act appropriately. So, if, you know, necessity is the mother, as I always say. So if you're in your environment and you need to talk about something, you probably figure out how to do it if you've evolved over a long enough period. It's just, you know, what are those categories and what are those concepts? You know, whether we'll ever have a conversation with another animal to that level, I don't know. I mean, you could really look at some of the interfaces with primates and parrots and say, well, we kind of had a, have had a conversation. What we just... One of the things about language we don't know if it applies to animals is is the whole time displacement thing. Can they talk about the future and the past and reflect on things? You know, I, I imagine with long-term memories they have that that ability, whether they have that need to, you know, we don't know. So a lot of questions. Um, you know, I think uh, species have to be motivated to communicate with another species. But, you know, humans are pretty far behind. You know, a lot of species in the wild interact and on certain levels already communicate with each other, or at least take advantage of signals they understand from other species. We just don't need to, so we haven't really done it. You know, this is out of more intellectual curiosity than necessity, but, um, you know, I think we could learn a lot from how other species communicate with each other as well. You know, I think the one really important thing to think about when we think about dolphins in general, too, is that, you know, they're complex, but they're also so family-oriented and so connected themselves. Like, for example, for me to understand dolphin communication, one of the most valuable things has been watching little dolphins grow up because I can look at adult behavior and say, okay, that's how they mate and that's how they fight. But watching development and how adults teach and, and demonstrate things to young animals and how young animals learn dynamics with each other, I mean, these are the things I think we can really relate to as humans, but also it's so important to understand the process of communication. You know, how does communication develop? I think that is also a very understudied aspect of many animals' lives, and more than anything, it's critical. You know. All right. Well, I wish you safe travels this spring, and to you and your crew, and and I hope the dolphins are ready, willing, and able to uh, be with you guys. And I. And I hope you guys are ready, willing, and able to be with them. <laughs> yeah, it'll be interesting, that's for sure. We'll, we'll try to blog, <laughs> so check our website if you get a chance. I will, definitely. <laughs> Take care, Denise. Happy okay, sailing. Okay, thanks, Jim. Uh -huh. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
That was Dr. Denise Hertzing, research director and founder of the Wild Dolphin Project, talking with How on Earth producer Jim Pullen about how she communicates with dolphins. Dr. Hertzing and her crew are about to embark once again from Florida in their well-seasoned 62-foot catamaran RV Stanella. You can read about her groundbreaking research in her recently published book, Dolphin Diaries, and follow her at her blog at www.wilddolphinproject.org slash news slash blog. This Earth Day, Sunday, April 22nd, celebrate the diversity of life on our wet blue home. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced and engineered by Jim Pullen, with headline contributions by Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional audio is from Dr. Denise Hertzing of the Wild Dolphin Project. And we here at How on Earth would like to wish a big good luck to my co-host Brianna Draxler, who defends her master's project today in journalism and mass communication. Her project is a book proposal exploring the production of the ingredients in her grandmother's family-famous banana bread. Break a leg, Brianna. Thanks, Beth. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bartel. And I'm Brianna Draxler.